Hello everyone, and welcome back to Tink's Medieval Times. Looking at the time, it's Crusades O'Clock. Another opportunity for us to explore the rich tapestry of events that carry the Prince's Crusade to Jerusalem. I fear that two weeks ago I may have overpromised with my claim to be able to condense the Siege and Battle of Antioch into a single episode of Crusades O'Clock. <laughs> After all, there's rather a lot of it. The events of the siege, covering the period from the 21st of October 1097 to the 3rd of June 1098, are both extensive and complicated, encompassing not just the attempt at, at a blockade of the city, but also several Muslim sallies, battles, and the construction of temporary fortifications around the city's perimeter. Following the fall of Antioch to the Crusaders' forces, the siege is then complemented by the famous showdown between the forces of the First Crusade and those of the great Seljuk Sultanate, with the Turkish Atabeg Kaboga of Mosul at the head of the Muslim force. This titanic engagement on the 28th of June 1098 will be the main focus of our next episode, with the development of the Christian siege and Muslim attempt to end it between October 1097 and April 1098 being the subject of this one. Last time we met, we left the forces of the Prince's Crusade poised to swoop down on the fortress city of Antioch. Success here would mark the first stage in their campaign through the Levant, the region bordering the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, which would culminate with their siege and seizure of Jerusalem. To date, that being October 1097, there are many positives on the Crusaders' balance sheet. They have crushed the forces of Kilik Arslan of Rum and Danish Mend of Sivas, driving the two Muslim allies into the hinterlands of their respective territories, for the time being safely out of the Crusaders' way. So far, a good relationship has been maintained between the Crusaders and Byzantium, who, alongside the Christian prince's newfound Armenian allies, continue to provide the substantial Christian host with food and supplies. Tancred, and especially Baldwin of Boulogne, have carved some territory out for the Crusaders already, culminating with Baldwin's establishment of the County of Edessa in March 1098. These lands serve to provide food and other resources which, as the Siege of Antioch progresses, will provide much-needed support. Against this rosy picture, however, leans the weight of casualties, among both man and beast, that the Crusade had already sustained, the loss of war horses, as much as the deaths amongst the Crusade's soldiery, will prove to have an enormous impact on the capacity of the Latin knights to fight in the manner that they have become used to. That mailed cavalry charge that had proven so effective earlier in the Crusade's progress. Moreover, by threatening Antioch, they were sizing up to an enemy far more powerful than the Sultanate of Rum or the Emirate of Danishmend. At least in theory, for Antioch was held by the Turkish governor Yagi Siyan, a man whose multitudinous hierarchical allegiances ultimately led up to the great Seljuk Sultan. The present Sultan, Bakiaruk, son of Malik Shah and grandson of the great conqueror Alp Arslan, held lands that still stretched from Syria and the border with Egypt as far east as modern Afghanistan and Pakistan. It was a state of vast proportions, with good organisation and leadership, 
the great Seljuk Sultanate had the potential to field an army far larger than the combined forces of the First Crusade. Here lies the rub, however, for the reality of Barkiaruk's state by late 1097 was a very different one to the Seljuk Sultanate of Malik Shah at the start of the 1090s. No better are these differences illustrated than by the situation facing Antioch itself. Sitting on the Great Sultan's northwestern border, the city had been a Greek outpost until 1085, a long time after its surrounding territories and neighbouring cities had fallen into Seljuk hands. Yagisian's predecessor as governor, the Greek general Philaratos Brachamios, held Antioch until his death in 1085, at least in theory as an outlying territory of the Byzantine Empire. Though his loyalty to Constantinople, and the ability of the emperors Michael VII, Nicephorus III and Alexius I to impose their will on him, are at best unknown quantities, the city's tradition of defiance to Seljuk authority was clearly established. Only after a three-cornered conflict between the Sultan Malik Shah, Philaratos himself, and Kilikarslan's father Suleiman, which resulted in the bloody deaths of the latter two figures, was the Sultan able to impose Yagisian as governor, reporting to Malik Shah's brother Tutush, the Seljuk king or Malik of Syria. Yagisian outlived both Malik Shah and Tutush, making him one of the longest-standing Turkish officials in the area. He still governed the city when the First Crusade arrived in October 1097, and continued to do so until his death in early June 1098. In 1097, even before the Crusade had crossed the border from the Sultanate of Rum, Yagipsian's political position was precarious. His closest ally within the Seljuk Sultanate had been his patron Malik Shah, who by 1097 had been dead for half a decade. Malik Shah's son, Bakiaruk, though supportive of Yagisian, was distant and distracted, engaged in one of many civil conflicts with his brother Muhammad Tapar. Aside from this, Yagisian had few friends to speak of in his backyard. In the chaos following the death of Malik Shah in 1092, he had preserved his position in Antioch by making and breaking alliances as it suited him. Unsurprisingly, most of Yagisian's neighbours considered him a duplicitous crook. Ridwan, the Seljuk Malik, or king, of Aleppo, famously considered Yagisian as responsible for the death of his father Tushush in the latter's conflict with his nephew, the Sultan Bakiaruk. This was doubly problematic for Yagisian in that Ridwan was theoretically his overlord, himself subject to Bakiaruk. Such a chaotic and poisonous personal political setup did not lend itself to a robust unified response to the approach of the First Crusade, with Yagisian to be the prominent opening casualty of this response. His city was first on the Crusaders' route through Seljuk territory, and he was the local ruler facing the most animosity from his co-religionist neighbours. Yagisian's other significant problem was his city's ethnographic mix, though this ended up being rather more straightforward for him to solve. On hearing of the Crusaders' approach, the Antiochene governor expelled the city's Christian population. Leaving nothing to chance, Yagisian had no wish to provide any chance of his city being betrayed to the Crusaders by their co-religionists within his walls. If brutal and uncompromising, this decision proved to be a wise choice. 
For aside from his fairly catastrophic diplomatic position, Yaki Sian was rather well set up in Antioch itself. He had a garrison numbering between four and 7,000 men, even at the bottom end of this range enough to man the city's extensive defences. And these defences were key, making Antioch one of the notorious strongholds of the medieval world. They were sufficiently formidable to call Stephen of Blois to write, in awe to his wife, that we found the city of Antioch very extensive, fortified with incredible strength and almost impregnable. The city's natural defences were terrifying enough. Antioch itself was set into the side of the imposing Mount Silpius and Staurin, dominating an already imposing landscape. Antioch's medieval limits were on its western side flanked by the Orontes, which earned its nickname the Rebel River from contemporaries on account of its rapid current, which seemed sometimes to flow from the Mediterranean to its source in the mountains rather than vice versa. Alongside its natural defences, Antioch was also enclosed by a circuit of stone walls of Byzantine design and manufacture, seven and a half miles long. One Muslim contemporary claimed that these walls were peppered with 360 towers, of which the existence of 60 have been confirmed by archaeologists. One can assume that each of these was equipped with the same kinds of defensive weapons as at Nicaea, giant crossbows and the like. To cap it all, set in the summit of Mount Silpius, 500 metres above Antioch's other defences, the citadel lorded it over all. Assaulting Antioch, then, was a tall order, but so was placing it under the close blockade that the Crusaders envisaged. The city was accessible at six gates along its walls, which were divided into three distinct groups of entrances, which, due to the natural obstacles between them, were difficult to travel between from outside the city. Five of these entrances sat on the city's western side. Treating Antioch as a clock face, from six to twelve o'clock you could find the Gate of St George, the Bridge Gate, the Gate of the Duke, the Dog Gate and the Gate of St Paul. The first two of these were separated from the last three by the River Orontes, which could only be easily forded at a place around 12 kilometres upstream. This made it difficult for the Crusaders to, to cover these five gates simultaneously, without dangerously dividing their forces into smaller, mutually unsupportable groups. The sixth gate, the Iron Gate, was set into the city's eastern wall in the heart of the mountains. Covering this was an almost impossible task which the Crusaders never seriously attempted. The mountain defiles, which led to the Iron Gate, forced any besieger to show their backs to the Muslims in Aleppo, almost inviting an ambush-style envelopment from which said besieging force was unlikely to emerge victorious. Despite these formidable obstacles, the Crusaders settled on a strategy of blockade on leaving Marash and heading southwards towards Antioch. With this in mind, they also made efforts to keep their own forces supplied, even if these plans did not hold up to the pressure of the protracted siege in the longer term. As noted in our last episode, Peter of Roesch had already seized control of the Rouge Valley on behalf of Raymond of Toulouse. This fertile land in Antioch's vicinity would provide a th an initially productive, though quickly exhausted, 
source of food for the besiegers. To secure the road between Antioch and the Rouge Valley, not to mention other potential sources of food, Robert of Flanders set out with 1,000 men to seize the town of Arta. Arta sat on a crossroads to the south of Marash, which also served the larger cities of Aleppo, Edessa and Antioch itself. Following news of Arta's fall into Christian hands, the Crusaders pursued their next short-term logistical goal by assaulting the Iron Bridge, which forded the Orontes north of Antioch on the road to the city's St Paul Gate. Though it is probable that the medieval bridge was not, in fact, made of iron, as some writers have claimed, it was a sturdy structure that survived until the 1970s, and in the 1090s was fortified with towers and garrisoned with 700 of Yaki Siam's men. Despite the Turkish governor's preparations, the Crusader vanguard under Robert of Normandy drove the Turks from the Iron Bridge's defences with relative ease. This robbed Antioch of its first line of defence from the north, and allowed the Crusaders their first defensive emplacement to protect their besieging forces and its supply trains from attacks from the north. The last set of logistical preparations that the Crusaders made as the siege got underway were seaborne. As we have seen, on his march from Silesia, Tancred had already taken control of the port of Alexandretta on the eastern Mediterranean coast. But there were two ports closer to Antioch than this whose part in this tale bears consideration. Laodicea and San Simeon. The exact details of how the Crusaders came to acquire these two ports are a little hazy. It seems likely that both were taken by fleets composed of multiple nationalities. The seaborne attack on Turkish Laodicea, coordinated by and largely paid for by the Byzantine Empire through their recently appointed governor of recently conquered Cyprus. At San Simeon, it is likely that English sailors, crewing around 30 ships, played a leading role in the port's capture from the Turks. An intervention from my countrymen rarely replicated elsewhere in the First Crusade. Again, we are unaware of the precise timings that these cities fell. Most likely, both were in Christian hands by the time the Crusaders formed up in sight of Antioch's walls on the 21st of October, 1097. San Simeon must have been in Christian hands by November of that year, when a fleet of Genoese ships docked there unchallenged. But at least one of San Simeon or Laodicea must have fallen by the end of October, to allow Adhemar of Lepuy his visit to Cyprus from Antioch in early November. The port of Alexandretta, his only other option, was simply too far away from the Crusader camp to facilitate this journey in that timescale. Allowing Adamar his jolly to Cyprus was of course one very small part of the worth that these new coastal acquisitions brought to the Crusaders. They were a vital part of the Crusaders' food supply. Ralph of Caen reports that, at the height of the Crusader demand for food, when local sources had run dry, food imports were arriving at the Crusader camp of Antioch from as far afield as Rhodes, Crete, Cyprus, the Aegean island of Samos, and the western Anatolian port of Mytilene. Without Alexandretta, Laodicea and San Simeon, through which this food came, the Crusaders would most likely have starved to death. As we shall see, even in spite of this network, many of the besiegers did just that. Supplying their own army was not the only problem faced by the Crusaders, however, they also had to prevent supplies getting to Yagi Sian and his garrison as part of their blockade of the city. This proved impossible to achieve in its entirety, 
The Crusaders, as we have discussed, were never able to cover the Iron Gate on the eastern side of the city. In the opening stages of the siege, they did not even feel confident defending their forces to properly lock down the south and southwesterly approaches to the St George Gate and the Bridge Gate either. Their initial deployment covered the three north and northwesterly gates, with Bohemond, Tancred and their Normans covering the northern gate of St Paul. The French contingents, under Stephen of Blois, Hugh of Vermandois and the two Roberts of Normandy and Flanders, covering the Dog Gate, and Godfrey de Bouillon and his sizeable host camped before the gate of the Duke. Raymond of Toulouse and Tatikios, the Byzantine Emperor's military attaché and representative on the crusade, hung back in reserve. The initial problem that covering only these three gates posed was never fully going to go away, as it left the blockade ineffective. It left three of Antioch's major gates entirely unwatched. Prior to March 1098, when the Crusaders started to get a handle on Antioch's southernmost gates, there were frequently long stretches of time when Yagi Sian and his besieged garrison were actually rather better fed than the besieging Crusaders themselves. Antioch, then, was a long and far from straightforward siege. The Crusaders faced three principal problems in pursuing it, maintaining an effective blockade on the city, maintaining their own food supplies, and fending off counter-attacks from both the Muslim garrison of the city and relief forces from outside Antioch. We will deal with each of these issues in turn. The first problem, maintaining the blockade, was one that the Crusaders developed a solution to slowly, but this solution was pursued throughout with great tenacity and determination by a crusader force unaided by both the geography of Antioch and, increasingly, their own numbers. Whilst the First Crusade vastly outnumbered Yaki Sian and his garrison, four to seven thousand Seljuk defenders arrayed against thirty thousand or so surviving crusaders, the length of Antioch's walls and the terrain that separated them meant that maintaining local superiority across meaningful lengths of Antioch's defences was difficult for the Crusaders to achieve. The besiegers enjoyed a two-week grace period when fear kept Yagisian's Turks within Antioch's walls. From this point, however, Yagisian launched regular raiding parties on Crusader forces and their supply lines alike, while encouraging local merchants through the undefended gates of the city, making particular use of the bridge and St George gates, which were less closely watched than their northerly counterparts and less awkwardly situated than the Iron Gate to the east. The Crusaders had to respond to avoid being starved out by their enemy that they were supposed to be besieging. They did so with three bold and, to a greater or lesser extent, improvised solutions. The first was the construction and deployment of a bridge of boats on the Orontes between Godfrey's camp at the Gate of the Duke and the approach to the Bridge Gate, at roughly nine o'clock on Antioch as a clock face. Shipping was roped together to allow soldiers and merchants alike to cross the river without using the more northerly and distant ford. This made it easier for imports from Laodicea and San Simeon to reach the Crusader camps on the east and south banks of the River Orontes. It also allowed the Crusaders to more easily deploy troops to cover approaches to the Bridge and St George Gates which would prove vital for later Crusader movements to extend the blockade. Having made it easier to cross the Orontes, the Crusaders then worked on tightening up the blockade. First, they needed to secure their own relatively vulnerable position. For unlike Yagi Sian and his men, 
They did not have seven and a half miles of stone wall to protect them as they slept. As Yagisian's sallying operations became more frequent in the late autumn of 1097, the Crusaders started to experiment with the construction of improvised fixed emplacements. The first of these was Malregard, a wooden fortification built in the six weeks following the arrival of timber and skilled carpenters with the Genoese fleet that docked to San Simeon on the 17th of November 1097. Guarding the northern approach to Antioch, towards the Gate of St. Paul, Malregard served as protection for the tent-dwelling crusaders in Bohemond and Tancred's Norman host. They also allowed substantial numbers of these men to move around the walls, possibly via the bridge of boats, without leaving the crucial northern approach to Antioch entirely undefended. Built in an area heavily occupied by friendly forces, Malregard served as the prototype for later, more ambitious temporary emplacements built by the Crusaders in the less easily accessible southwesterly approaches to the city. An old mosque on the west bank of the Orontes, facing Antioch's bridge gate, presented the next target for the Crusaders' programme of construction. This large, stone-framed building would prove a useful foundation for an improvised fort, larger and more imposing than Malregard, with greater defensive value. Lacking the scruples that would make contemporary architects balk at repurposing this place of worship, the Crusaders' leaders agreed in enthusiastic unanimity on the 4th of March 1098 to occupy the mosque, renaming it as the Mahamari Tower, and begin construction. Ignorant of this decision and any subsequent Crusader preparations, a band of Yagisian's Turkish garrisons snuck out of the city to bury their dead in the grounds of the mosque. A short but furious skirmish ensued. The Christians drove the Turks away, desecrating their newly dug graves and stealing all manner of weapons, gold and ceremonial clothing before decapitating the bodies and throwing them in a pit. Work then began in earnest on fortifying the mosque on the 10th of March. The Crusaders had completed its new wooden fortifications by the 14th. Further from the centre of the Crusader force than Malregard, the, the Mahomery Tower proved all the more important for preventing supplies from entering Antioch, especially via the bridge gate, which it faced. So successful was this heavier blockade of the bridge gate that Tancred volunteered to lead an expedition to build a wooden tower, similar to Malregard, outside the southern gate of St. George. The success of this venture, unimaginatively named Tancred's Tower, began to turn the screw on the besieged force in early April. By the end of April 1098, all of the gates into the city except the awkward Iron Gate, with its notoriously difficult eastern passage, were being watched by Crusader forces from their new improvised fortifications. Alongside this construction of counterforts along Antioch's perimeter, the Crusaders were thorough in their seizure of Muslim forts outside Antioch's walls. We have already seen this with the seizure of Arta and the Iron Bridge. The only other significant Muslim stronghold in the vicinity of the city was Harim, 15 kilometres due east of Antioch. This castle had already proved a nuisance to the Christians, providing a base for Turkish raiders to attack Christian supply trains and foragers between the Iron Bridge and the Rouge Valley. The Crusaders made two attempts to take the castle, the first a bungled effort in the second week of November 1097. Crusader scouts, having failed in their reconnaissance, 
the force sent to take Harim stumbled upon it and its garrison by accident. Though the Crusaders did get the better of the subsequent skirmish, it was a close-run thing, and they were left without the manpower or the wherewithal to take the fortress. In late November, the Crusaders had another go, with Bohemond of Taranto taking a more leading role. Employing a feint attack which emulated the blundering of the Christian vanguard in their first assault on Harim, Bohemond lured out the overconfident Muslim garrison. They were subsequently massacred by Bohemond and his knights in a mountain defile, allowing the Christians to occupy Harim almost unopposed. This ready-made fortress, though distant and likely garrisoned, proved a useful complement to Malregard, and later the Mahomery and Tancred's tower, in tightening the blockade on Antioch. Our second theme is the Crusaders securing their own food supply, and here the besiegers saw a less consistent rise in their fortunes over the course of the siege. For the first two weeks of the conflict, covering the end of October 1097, food was in abundance, a consequence of sound forward planning in both the occupation of land and the securing of supply lines. What the Crusaders underestimated was how much food they would need, how quickly local sources would run dry, and how effective Yagi Sian's raiding parties would prove to be. The construction of Malregard and the seizure of Harem mitigated these issues, as did the work of the Armenian princes and Byzantine authorities to raise more food. Tatikios, the Byzantine attaché, who was later heavily criticised for abandoning the siege, did so primarily to arrange for more food to be sent from Constantinople. He left all of his staff behind with the besiegers. However, these efforts never proved equal to the task of keeping the besieging army well-fed, and often, especially in November and December of 1097, but as late as March 1098, conditions in the Crusader camp were fairly disastrous. Stephen of Blois, wrote to his wife in March 1098 that people had resorted to eating thistles, undercooked bean sprouts, camels, dogs, and even rats. Other sources suggest that the very poorest crusaders rooted around in animal dung for any signs of undigested grain. Conditions in Antioch's hinterland became notorious well beyond the city's immediate surroundings. The less charitable among Syria's Christian population described the disease-ridden crusader camp as a pissoir. In an attempt to make light of these events, the Chanson d'Antioch records the sad tale of a donkey owned by Irvin de Creel. Leaving the animal with his friend Pierre Postel, Irvin heads off to mass. By the time he has returned, Pierre has fed the unfortunate animal, cooked first, one assumes, to his squires. Though reconciliation between the two friends followed a bitter, tearful squabble, the fate of the poor donkey in such a short space of time makes the extent of the desperation for food appallingly clear. The irony of the whole situation was that Antioch had become a siege turned on its head. Until the construction of the Mahamari Tower in March 1098, the besiegers had less food than the besieged. Morale was understandably low as a result. As long-term logistical preparations took a while to kick in, Adhemar of Le Puy, the Crusade's ostensible leader, had a shorter-term fix in mind. In January 1098, he stamped his authority on the expedition, instituting penitential fasting, processions and prayers. Women, wives as well as the unmarried, 
were sent away from the camp, back to the relative safety of the coast, to remove temptations from the crusader knights and foot soldiers. For sin, Adamar reasoned, must be at the root of the evils of the siege. Known adulterers were publicly flogged to hit this message home. These measures had the primary and public intention of purifying the crusade, so that God would look more favourably on it and grant the crusaders victory. In addition, Adamar encouraged wealthier crusaders to engage in almsgiving. Alongside the further penitential benefits which such activities would provide, the donations of surplus, doubtless hoarded, food were redistributed to the starving poor in the crusader camp, those who needed them most. In his own ingenious way, Adamar tackled two problems here with one fell swoop. The bishop's efforts certainly mitigated the ill effects of the lack of food, especially those on crusader morale, but his efforts did not entirely eliminate the problem of malnutrition and the diseases that accompanied it. The ill effects of all of this were felt even after the siege of Antioch had ended, ironically by Adamar himself, who contracted typhus and died in August 1098. Moreover, the arms and trickle of food imports could only get the Crusaders so far. For the remainder of the siege, the First Crusade was heavily reliant on foraging. This was a risky business. Even after the construction of Malregard and the fall of Harim, Muslim raiders remained on the prowl. Ludwig, Archdeacon of Toul, even accompanied by 300 men, was ambushed by one such Turkish force whilst collecting food. Yagisian sent 600 Turkish horsemen out of the Iron Gate, surprising Ludwig's foragers and butchering them. This was but one of a large number of doubtless predominantly unrecorded incidents where such things occurred. Well-coordinated and armed foraging expeditions could, however, play an important role in anticipating the third great theme of the siege, the arrival of Muslim relief forces. This was exactly what occurred when Bohemond of Taranto and Robert of Flanders, with 400 knights and a host of footmen, set out in search of food at around Christmas time 1097. South of Antioch, near the Rouge Valley, they had a chance encounter with a far larger army under Dukak, the Seljuk Malik, or King, of Damascus, the first in a line of potentially potent but ultimately doomed rescuers for Yagi Siyan and his beleaguered garrison in Antioch. Dukak, a younger son of the Seljuk Malik Tutush, had acquired a substantial chunk of southern Syria on the death of his father in 1095. He was not a natural ally of Yagi Siyan, whom he held to be in part responsible for the victory of the Sultan Bakiaruk in the civil war that resulted in Tutush's death. The Antiochene governor fell further still in Dukak's estimations as he was a nominal vassal of Dukak's elder brother Ridwan of Aleppo. The same Ridwan had numerous contacts among the nascent Nizari sect of assassins in Syria, on whom more will be revealed in a future podcast, and had attempted to employ these contacts to eliminate his siblings following his father's death. Dukak, the only survivor of this fratricidal bloodbath, had no reason to support his brother, and never did so directly, 
for the two men certainly never fought side by side in battle in all of the nine years that they both sat on their respective thrones in Damascus and Aleppo. To gain Dukak's support for besieged Antioch was a great triumph, and the honours for this belong to Yagi Siam's great diplomat, also his son, Shams al-Dawla. Shams approached Dukak in the late autumn of 1097 and talked him round. Dukak was somewhat receptive, if only because he knew relations between Yagi Siam and his hated brother Ridwan were far from cordial. Moreover, doubtless advised by his veteran Atabeg, Tukhtikin, later to be a major opponent of the Crusaders in his own right. Dukak came to see the need to safeguard his own territory by stopping the crusade in its tracks at Antioch. If this strategic thinking was wise, its execution, as we shall see, proved devoid of either wisdom or the determination to see it through to its conclusion. Dukak set out from Damascus with Shams al-Dawla and Tukhtakin in tow. His force, hardly the full manpower of his Damascene state, was still impressive and somewhat larger than the Crusader army that they blundered into. Bohmond and Robert of Flanders, caught wrong-footed, lost significant numbers of infantry who, out of formation and engaged in the practice of foraging, panicked at the sudden appearance of this large Turkish army. Bohmond took command of the scene, doing what Bohemond does best, and marshalled his and Robert's armoured knights. They charged Dukak's Seljuk horsemen as the latter carved their way through the scattering infantry. Whether intimidated by Bohemond's fearsome charge, or suddenly unwilling to risk his forces on a campaign so far from home, Dukak promptly turned his army around and headed back to Damascus. In this bizarre and chaotic contest of wills, the Crusaders had definitively won the day. Though the engagement was also a strategic failure for them, for the foragers went home empty-handed and bereft of dozens of their infantry colleagues. The Crusaders' failings proved less problematic than Dukak's in the longer term. For the young king of Damascus had a good opportunity here to break the Crusader siege of Antioch, and this was an opportunity that he did not pursue. The decision would prove to have disastrous consequences for Muslim power across the whole region. Dukak's withdrawal was most immediately problematic for Yagi Siyan, who was bereft of support from one of the great local powers in the Seljuk Empire. Reluctantly, he turned to his second, still more local, option. No sooner had Shams al-Dawla returned to the safety of Antioch's walls than he was packed off again out of the Iron Gate, this time to the east, to Aleppo, to treat with Ridwan. Older than Dukak, and more embittered against Yagi Siyan, Ridwan of Aleppo remains one of my favourite characters from this era. Not at all likeable, but eerily fascinating. Tutush's oldest son had aspirations to be the major power in Syria, like his father. As we saw with his dealings with Dukak, his nefarious methods to achieve this were not altogether successful. But he had a secure base in Tutush's old capital at Aleppo. Since it had been ceded by, or wrested from, the Medassids in the 1080s, Aleppo had found itself at the centre of turbulent Seljuk politics. To his credit, and in spite of his numerous other failings, Ridwan went some way to stabilising the situation in the city, ruling Aleppo continuously and without serious challenge from 1095 until his death in 1113. 
He did so, partly through carefully cultivated links with the Nizari assassins, who kept him safe from harm and, on occasion, were capable of removing troublesome opponents. The remainder of Ridwan's survival strategy depended on the wary, arm's-length relations that he maintained with his other Muslim neighbours. It is worth bearing this latter strategy in mind as we observe Ridwan's movements during the Siege of Antioch, as well as later in our story. For Shams al-Dawla, acting on his father's behalf, Ridwan of Aleppo would prove a tough nut to crack. Shams arrived in Aleppo in early January, and had to endure nearly a month in Ridwan's presence before convincing the Seljuk Malik to advance out of his city to Yagisian's support. Four weeks of suffering Ridwan's erratic temper and famously sarcastic quips would prove an endurance test for the best of diplomats. But Shams al-Dawla also proved worthy of this challenge. As February 1098 began, Ridwan began to assemble his troops, a formidable force of 12,000 men, and set out to march on Antioch. Ridwan's was a more serious enterprise than Dukak's, larger and executed with a greater sense of determination and purpose. It was still a failure, and perhaps because of Ridwan's strengths it proved to be a more problematic one. Bohemond of Taranto, once again, played a key role in executing this crusader victory. His one advantage was knowledge. He knew that Ridwan was coming, and this time could anticipate which route he would take. When this route was confirmed by scouts from the Christian garrison at Harim, that they had observed Ridwan taking the road past Arta towards the Iron Bridge, the leaders of the crusade devised a plan to stop the Malik of Aleppo in his tracks. Bohemond, given a thousand knights and around the same number of foot soldiers, was instructed to hold Ridwan on the north side of the Orontes. The rest of the crusaders would remain in their existing positions around Antioch, to hold the blockade against an anticipated sally attack from Yagi Siam. Bohemond controversially instructed his infantry to fall back on the Iron Bridge, and to try and hold it in case the battle that he had planned went ill. His mounted knights, the main players in the coming conflict, were divided into six squadrons. Sent across the Iron Bridge, they were deployed out of sight beyond the hills that lay between Lake Antioch, to the north of the city and river, and the road. Bohemond and his knights, the sixth squadron, hid behind the farthest and most magnificent of these summits, the Taniat Hill. Ridwan and his army approached, knowing nothing of these preparations. A cautious man, the king of Aleppo had chosen this route, ironically, because he believed such an ambush that Bohemond had planned to be impossible. Deploying a vanguard to cover his main army just in case, he had contained his troops along this narrow stretch of land to avoid his force becoming enveloped by what he anticipated to be the whole force of the First Crusade. In fact, Ridwan's army outnumbered the force that the Crusaders had sent against him, quite considerably, so he, and not Bohemond, would have benefited from the opportunity to outmanoeuvre and outflank his opponent. This was a fact that did not escape the minds or indeed the pens, of Muslim chroniclers hostile to Ridwan of Aleppo, who wrote about this incident subsequently. As Ridwan's vanguard approached the Iron Bridge, Bohemond sprang most of his trap. Five of the six squadrons of knights emerged from the hills, 
riding pell-mell into Ridwan's vanguard and dispersing them. Very quickly, these Christian knights met with the main bulk of Ridwan's army, which had braced to receive them. Arrows blackened the sky, and Ridwan committed the lion's share of his troops to ensure that this First Crusader charge was stalled. He succeeded, and for a short time it seemed that Ridwan's cautious but solid troop deployment had won the day. In fact, very much to the contrary, it lost it. Bohemond waited for the moment that Ridwan had overcommitted his troops, before he then led his sixth squadron over the summit of the Taniat Hill. Ridwan had no reserves, and therefore no troops to stop Bohemond from slamming into the flank of his force. The Turks facing this right flank reeled in panic from yet another cavalry charge. The rout spread through Ridwan's tightly packed ranks, with dozens of Turkish warriors falling or leaping into the river Orontes to their left, swept away in its vicious current. Hundreds more Turks were butchered by the rejuvenated Christian knights, as Ridwan's forces tripped over each other to flee. The Aleppan king's nerve quickly broke, and Ridwan fled with the rest of his troops, not stopping until he had reached the safety of Aleppo. Like Kilik Arslan and Danish men before him, he was duly chastened, and did not challenge the Crusaders again until after Jerusalem had fallen in 1099. It is not known when Shams al-Dawla abandoned Ridwan, but he soon found himself back in Antioch's walls, with his bitterly disappointed father. Yagi Siyan's coordinated Sally attack had, in the short term, proven to be a great success, inflicting more casualties on the Crusaders than they received. On hearing of Ridwan's defeat, however, Yagi Siyan quickly withdrew his men back into Antioch's walls. Shortly after he had given this prudent order, Bohemond's men returned. They erected makeshift catapults before the gate of St. Paul, not to fire rocks, but the severed heads of Ridwan's men. As the ghastly visage of hundreds of decapitated Seljuk warriors looked up upon them, Antioch's Turkish garrison began to feel decidedly cut off from the rest of the Muslim world. No one felt this isolation more acutely than Yagi Siyan. He knew the lie of the political landscape of the area. With Dukak driven off, and Ridwan well and truly out of the picture, he had only one option remaining, and for him, this option was the least palatable of a bad lot. Two weeks' march to the east of Antioch, in the centre of the Jazera, Seljuk Mesopotamia, brooded Kaboga, Atabeg of Mosul. The mighty Seljuk Atabeg had sizeable military resources, greater than Dukak's and Ridwan's combined, which of course they never would be. That Kaboga was so far away it was among the least of Yagi Siyan's worries, for his principal concern was the Atabeg's intentions. Kaboga had long desired Antioch for himself, and now he had both the means and the excuse to wrest it from Yagi Siyan's failing grasp. So, asking for Kaboga's aid was a gamble that Antioch's veteran governor did not wish to take. But, in the end, he knew he had no choice. Thank you again for listening to Tink's Medieval Times. An epic of an episode, both in length and in content, so thank you for bearing with me. I'm hoping you'll join me in a fortnight's time to discover what becomes of Yaki Siyan, Kerboga, 
and are increasingly confident crusaders. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please leave a comment on the podcast, or get in touch with me at tinksmedievaltimes at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe Tinks Medieval Times Crusades O'Clock, and in the meantime, I hope you have a splendid day. See you next time.